to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, friends and fans, once again to the Lions of Liberty podcast coming at you from the Lions of Liberty studios here in sunny Los Angeles. And I got to say, I'm still recovering just a little bit from last week's episode. You know, if you guys tuned in, had a couple friends in here, a couple fellow Lions of Liberty. We had a few adult beverages. We had a little chat, something we called Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. And if you didn't hear that, be sure to go over to the archives where you can check that out, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. You can find every single one of our past editions of the Lions of Liberty podcast. So if you haven't heard them... As soon as you're done with this one, why don't you go on, head on over there and see what we've done with our past episodes. We've had a lot of great guests, a lot of great conversations. And, you know, one of the things we touched on briefly last week was the issue of education. And in particular, how the value of a higher education has been greatly diminished. You know, this is something millennials in particular are really realizing as they enter the job market with a ton of debt and often a degree that isn't quite worth what they were led to believe when they were told they need to go to college, told they need to get this degree so they can get a good job. And, and you know, yeah, sure, you'll get some debt, but no problem. You'll get a good job. You'll pay it off. No big deal. You know, but, but this kind of attitude has affected the lives of millions. You know, almost an entire generation now is facing this daunting combination of a devalued degree, a very difficult job market to break into in a really difficult economy, and a ton of debt on top of it. You know, besides that, there are all these new regulations, such as parts of the Obamacare law that are seeing people have even part-time work hours cut back, and then... We have all sorts of other regulations that hold people back. Minimum wage laws, if many people are calling to see increase, these push people out of the workforce instead of giving them more opportunities to get into the workforce and get those skills and really start to make a living for themselves. So it's a tough situation for a lot of people coming out of college in the last decade or so. And just as I have dedicated much of my life to advancing the ideas of liberty through our website, lionsofliberty.com, through this podcast... My guest today has dedicated much of his life to creating awareness concerning the student debt crisis. He is an actor, an activist, and a writer. He's received national recognition for his work as a recipient of the 2012 Emerging Artist Grant from the Puffin Foundation for his solo theater for social change. He is currently touring his solo play, For Profit, which has been featured on Huffington Post, NPR, RT America, and numerous other media outlets. He is also the co-founder and artistic director of Student Debt Crisis, a nonprofit organization dedicated to fundamental reforms to the way in which higher education is paid for in America. Aaron Califato, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you for that really gracious introduction. Thanks for having me. It's really good to talk to you. I know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, pre-show, we, we talked a little bit about just, I think, how fierce of advocates we are for our causes. So I was just excited to come on and, and talk with you because I know how fierce you've been working for, for your cause and, and I for mine. So I think, um, I don't know, I'm always just interested to talk with people. And I will just say this, I think, I think both of us, it seems, are really passionate about people and about fairness and about people being able to achieve what they call, I guess, the American dream. But more importantly, you seem like a really good person because I followed a lot of your stuff and I'm like, I'm sure we have some fundamental differences on certain items. At the same time, I think we probably line up in a lot more ways than we are dissimilar. So it's just really good to talk with you and honestly have been, as far as a person who is active, that word activist, I would say that you are in that category and you are active. So I have admiration for you for doing that. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate those kind words. And I, and I think you're right. I mean, the reason I want to have you on, I mean, yeah, sure. If you run down the list of maybe political positions, there might be a few that you know, don't really match up. But I'm not here to just, you know, preach to the choir and lay out my little libertarian agenda every single week. I want to have actual conversations with honest people that have, you know, a, an honest viewpoint on things. And that's something that I definitely see through you and your work. 
And, um, you know, yeah, we'll get to it a little bit later. We might not agree on every solution here, but I think you do a great job with bringing attention to the student debt crisis, you know, why people are getting into such debt, how it's affecting their lives going forward. And so why don't you just introduce yourself to the audience a little more, kind of let them know how you first became interested, I guess, specifically in the subject of student debt and how it eventually led you to create this play that you're currently touring with called For Profit. Yes, thanks. So I came at it from sort of an interesting angle. I guess the where I'm at right now in terms of the work that I do, I'm sort of a hybrid. I work, as you mentioned, a monologuist writing solo plays that kind of deal with complex social issues. And this particular play that sort of took off dealt specifically with the student debt crisis as well as the for-profit educational industry. But I came into that sort of by accident because I, you know, I had a communications degree from a four-year university. And what really happened and really got me into it was when our, not only when our loans came up, but the sort of the reality of, okay, you know, both of us, my wife and I, we went, we met at college. Both of us worked every summer. Um, We helped pay towards our tuition. Both of us were sort of responsible, I guess, so you could say we we were fiscally uh, responsible and frugal in terms of how we lived on campus, kind of avoiding a lot of those stereotypes that some people have about college students. And we also pursued, I think, important professions and professions that are, I think, tied to community and making our community and our country a better place. And so we did sort of that, that quote unquote, right thing. However, you know, when you're in school and when I was in school and and tuition doubles after your second year, you kind of go, oh, wait a second, that's not what I kind of agreed to, but you're kind of caught in a tough place because you've already invested so much time in your degree. And then you start realizing, wait a second, this is, this is not just a decision about my education now. This is a decision about you know, my economic livelihood, because what I thought I was getting into has now doubled. And if I complete this, you know, I'll have my degree. But if I if I drop out, or if I shift, like what happens, right, there was that fear that I know I was instilled in a lot of millennials, especially in high school about, you know, you have to go to college. And if you don't get a college degree, and and partly that there's a lot of reality to that. But I think um, we can touch on that later. For me, what got me into this thing was that in, in 2008, we transitioned from living in New Jersey to Cleveland, and primarily because our student loans all came up at the same time. My wife had lost her job as a social worker when sort of the, the 2008 economy tank happened, and we relocated to uh, where we were closer to family for, for those reasons, to be you know to have resources. And what I ended up doing was taking a job, sort of a Band-Aid job, I thought it was, at a for-profit university. I didn't know what a for-profit university was. I didn't know the difference between, you know, your University of Phoenix and your, you know, uh, your state school and so on and so forth. I just knew that I had these student loans at to pay and I needed a job and I got that job and it ended up giving me an insight to one of the most sort of disastrous predatory institutions I've ever been a part of. And ironically, you know, to sum it up, I was a millennial, a young person with a college degree with lots of student debt from a nonprofit school. Now working at a for-profit university, enrolling students, putting them into debt in order to pay my own debt off. And when you look at that, and if you frame that, and you go, that's not really a great place to be, and that's not just a great place to be for me. That's not where I want our young people and our country to be. And so I ended up using sort of my skills as a as a writer and an artist and a, and a theater artist, and I started writing a play. And what was great about it is I gave it an it's sort of an inside outside perspective. I mean, I was in those rooms. I know what happens within the for-profit schools. I worked as an admission advisor. And so I kind of have, it's not sort of this theoretical stuff, right? From the outside, I was there, I know what happens. And I kind of told that story as the way to enter into the play. And then I kind of get into the larger story about what people across the country are going through. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, using that form, that creative form of storytelling, of, of monologues, of connecting organically with an audience to humanize an issue, whatever your position is, to humanize an issue, turning it from a number to an actual human experience, and then connecting those folks to solution building tools. So that's where I'm at, and that's how I got into it. Yeah, and that, that's what I like a lot about your work and you know the perspective you bring to it, because I mean, you're not just, say, uh, a random activist that just, maybe you took up the cause of, you know, Monsanto, you're against GMOs, and you just took up that cause. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people have different causes. But you really come from full experience with your cause on both ends of it. You come with you know, getting into debt and and finding yourself sort of in that bind where you felt like you had to go to college, you know, you went there, 
prices started doubling, but then you still feel like you're in that bind because you're already invested so much time and so much money and so much effort into it. So you feel like you got to keep going with it. That's what gets you into debt. And then uh, through this <laughs> irony, through this, the irony of the financial crisis, you end up getting this job where you're doing the same thing. And it's like, it's a, it comes full circle to you and you're getting other people into debt to pay your debt. So I think it's a really interesting perspective you have coming from basically every side of this. Now, you mentioned earlier how it was never really presented as a, as a choice to you going to college. And I, I think that's the same for me and probably for all of us. I mean, my parents always told me, you know, decide what college you're going, not decide if you're going to college or decide if you want to go work or decide if you want to go travel or anything like that. And I'm not blaming them or anything for, for my student debt or what have you. But I think it's they're just kind of an example of the entire system that's developed over the last 20, 30, 40 years where everyone does feel for various reasons that they need to go to college or they're just going to be left behind and you know not get a job and be in an even worse situation than if they had all that debt because they're not even going to have a job to worry about having debt to pay in the first place so um, I really like the perspective that you come at it with now I want to go back to kind of from the beginning, you know, when you're in college and you said your tuition doubled and you're talking about how you worked at a for-profit organization, but that you came from this state school, or I guess, would you call that like a non-profit organization? How would you differentiate, I guess, the school that you attended and Mm. I guess this this organization, the for-profit organization that you eventually got a job for and were working working to, uh, you know, get people loans for? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and I um, it took me a long time, and a, and a lot of folks themselves really don't know the difference. I mean, a lot of educated folks don't know because you're like, well, isn't school school? Isn't college college? I mean, this has been sort of a new thing that happened, um, and for profits really crept up as sort of an idea of of sort of a um, another option for students. And in theory, that kind of makes sense. The idea that you would have you know, a for-profit institution. Um, and these schools are essentially like private businesses in their original form. Now, they don't get state subsidies, right? Or And even though state subsidies have dropped for state schools and state funding is declining drastically, these for-profits don't get that. However, what I learned and a lot of people are learning as well is they get essentially federal subsidies. And they get that because the for-profit institutions take federal dollars. They take student loans that are serviced through the federal government as well as private loans. But that's the problem with this sort of situation. And so while state schools like the one that I went to that I attended, you know, they have a new they have numerous ways of being funded and essentially and I'm, I'm pretty clear about this, essentially have the same outcome. I mean, at the end of the day, people still have ridiculous amounts of debt. Now, the biggest difference is how these schools go about getting students. There is an absolute, I would say, predatory aspect to most for-profit schools. That's like, you you know, you've been at home, right? If you're sick or you have the day off or maybe you have a different work schedule where it's flexible and you watch TV during the day and you see the commercials that come on. And it's usually someone in a medical assisting suit or it's some guy sitting on his couch saying, hey, are you a loser? You have a heart, you know what I'm saying? Your life sucks. Here's what you can do about it. You ever regret everything, anything, everything in your life that's ever happened? And so that kind of commercial where it's it's just essentially taking you know an economy and, and a group of people – and we have hundreds and thousands of people who are unemployed, who are looking for work and are really emotionally dealing with this. And these advertisements sort of target those kind of folks and, and people who are really kind of on the edge of fortune. And so there is a predatory aspect. And then on top of just the advertising schemes for the for-profits, there is an absolute predatory aspect within the institutions, meaning that they are going about this not in terms of retaining students, but literally just enrolling them at any cost. And that's sort of where I came in as an admissions advisor. I was asked to essentially enroll anybody and everybody that I could. And as long as they could get the funding, they don't care if it came from their parents. It usually didn't. But most importantly – does it come from military veterans? Perfect. We can we can abuse and use their military benefits. If does it come from low income folks? Yeah, let's let's take those because they will be recipients of certain subsidies. So they went after a lot of these, especially at risk neighborhoods, because as you know, there's a lot of money to be made in poverty, and so there's a reason why a lot of these schools are stuck in some of the you know toughest and most uh, impoverished neighborhoods in America. Now, the state school and like the school I went to. You know, there isn't that predatory aspect, if you will. I mean, yeah, you get there is advertising and it's all over. And there's there's a ton of marketing that goes into nonprofit schools and state schools and private institutions. There isn't the type of shaming and sort of, I would guess, direct kind of Glengarry Glen Ross esque salesman type of behavior. However, the outcome, as I mentioned, is the same. And that's where I sort of blend the two together because 
for me, the for-profit institutions are essentially just a forecast of what higher education could be like if we don't figure out some way to reform it. And so that's primarily the two differences, or a number of differences, but those those kind of help differentiate the two and those environments. There isn't that sense of like, you know, like you're like you're at a car sales lot at a state school, especially in the last 10 years. When I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and when I went to that school, do you know the first person I saw on campus? It wasn't a teacher. It wasn't a professor or adjunct. It wasn't a uh, counselor. It was a credit card salesman. First person I saw on campus. Oh, yeah. I remember those guys. They're all over the place. You remember the T-shirts? And they got – I mean, think about this. 17-year-old kids walking, just leaving their parents' house for the first time, ready to make life choices, and they're lined up down the main street with all the T-shirts, and you're already being trained how to get into debt before you even you know, pay on your first student loan. That was a bit – as I look back on it, I was a bit ashamed of what these public universities are doing, uh, and they especially are kind of always put their hands up and say, hey, we're just doing this for students. They know exactly what they're doing. This is my personal opinion. I don't think that should be happening. Yeah, I, I really like, Aaron, how you point out that you know at the end of the day, whether you're talking about the institutions that you're describing as the for-profit organizations or the, you know, the state schools, what have you, you do kind of get that same end result, which is all these people in debt. And I think to really identify a problem, just like if a doctor goes in and he, you have a, you go to the doctor and you have all these migraine headaches and, you know, he wants to fix the headache. Well, he could just write you a prescription and, and for a pill or something. But if you're, if these headaches keep coming back, we really got to get to the source of why are you having these headaches in order to fix the problem. So I think that's the same thing we have to do with any crisis. And I absolutely agree. This student debt, this, what is it like is over a trillion dollars, I believe in student debt that people have. There's a lot of different figures, but, but it's essentially between 1.2 and 1.4 mm-hmm. trillion dollars wow. in student, which surpasses credit card debt in this country. And essentially is now the second highest form of debt that we have in the United States of America. Wow. And there's no doubt that that debt cripples people going forward. I mean, if you're only making X amount, and I think this ties into the fact that the college degrees are also becoming a lot less valuable. So what you think you're going to get from your X degree and you're going to, you're going to, you think you're going to make a certain amount of money. Well, the reality for a lot of millennials coming out of school now is they're not even able to get a job in the degree they just earned. So not only do they have this degree that's not delivering what was promised, but now they have this massive debt and they don't have that high paying job. They thought they might get to pay it off. So it's obviously a very big problem. But I want to get to the source of it. So let's kind of think. Let's kind of go back. Because, you know, back in the day, my dad my dad worked his way through college. Yeah, he did ROTC, so he got some money through that. But he just worked, and he, he paid off his college as he went. And that that idea is such kind of a joke to people now. No one could even comprehend such a thing that you could actually work your way through college and pay for college. So what's happened, though, is that I think the government has gotten so heavily involved, as you mentioned, those loans, those subsidies, has gotten so heavily involved in funding colleges in kind of pushing this. I I call it the uh, kind of the university industrial complex. You know, it's all these universities have sprung about, many of them through state funding, many of them through quote-unquote funding through loans, but it all does come back to that same point where government at various levels is pumping money into this system. And whenever you pump money into something, you send a bunch of money one way, there's only one result that's going to occur and prices are going to rise. So I think over the last 30, 40 years, this is why we see a situation where your tuition just doubles overnight because they can do that because not only is this money kind of increasing the cost for everybody, because there's just so much more money being pumped into it, but it also kind of creates this sort of crony capitalist system where they're not really operating in a free market. Like you mentioned before, they're not really honestly competing for services a lot of the time. And when that money flows so freely, like with the, you know, to certain segments of the population, like you said, kind of uh, poorer people or people in the military, they have a lot more of that guaranteed money. They're going to get approved. So these organizations, what you're calling the for-profit organizations, I might not use that term. I might call them something else. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it that deeply yet. But what they're doing is essentially coming in. They're identifying, all right, there's this system that's been set up. They've given, you know, they're, they're going to put money in certain places. Now we can come in and we can use that system to our advantage. And I think what we really need to focus on is to 
identify that system in the first place and how we're even getting there as opposed to, and I I don't want to put those companies off and and give them kind of a pass because I think that's a a lot of a problem that a lot of libertarians have. They'll, They'll kind of say, well, if this happened on the free market, then it's fine. And that's not the case. You know, morals have to apply you know, across the board. So if, if there is an organization using deceptive methods to trick people into kind of taking these loans, that's something we should be calling out just as much as we are about, you know, the actual subsidies and where those loans are coming from in the first place. So I think you do a real service trying to point to that. Um, I know I'm kind of ranting here, but, but what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, it's really, really good stuff. Um, there's So there's a couple of things. I, I want to preface this by by saying a lot of my ideology sort of leans progressive generically, if you will. Okay. However, I am upfront and honest with every person that I speak to every university that I've performed at. I've in the last two years have performed, um, over a hundred times in 20 States around the United States. I mean, so it's been a really busy last couple of years and I talked to thousands and thousands of students and I am upfront, even though I have a particular, look, I'm not in this for like this particular cause for political victory my decisions and my art and my action and my activism isn't necessarily defined by political loyalty. It's quite the opposite. My number one focus is equity and fairness. Equity and fairness in the sense of giving a level playing field for people to work for what they want to do. The majority of people that I come across in the United States, that's all they seem to want. I will tell you from my personal experience, and people will disagree, I don't think the majority of people want like things given to them. They don't want to be hustled. And most Americans from whether they are saying, hey, we're being hustled because of taxes or they're saying because of health care or because of education, they're getting that on all ends. And they're just saying there's no room to breathe anymore. And everywhere we turn, we're getting hustled. So I'm, that's why I'm talking to you right now, because I'm interested in hearing other perspectives. I care. I'm an all the above solution guy. If the end of the day, if the solution to ending the student debt crisis means jumping on or, or sharing an ideology with someone or, or a, a politician or whatever that I have in the past disagree with, I don't care because at the end of the day, it means equity and fairness for the American student. And so that's one of the problems we, we're having in Washington. That's one of the problems is that nobody is willing to work together on these issues. Now, I'll tell you from a small segment and a small example, when I go and tour, this would be something you'd be, really appreciate. I've had so many performances, one, that have been uh, sponsored by the College Libertarians and the College Socialists together, jointly. I've had Republicans and Democrats, College Repubs and Democrats, um, jointly sponsor this. So that lets you know, and it's kind of similar to our conversation right now, that lets you know that even though there are these differences, this is a winnable issue because this affects everybody. The other thing that I come at this from, the perspective, that, and I, which I think has at least gotten me in rooms with people uh, with your particular ideology is, is that this is bad for business. Student debt is bad for business. I think at the end of the day, if you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people coming out of school in the negative, they are deterred from being entrepreneurial. They cannot be economically stimulative. They cannot. And so that's another thing that I'm really keyed in on as well is we need, if you will, consumer power. And we want our young people to take risks. We want them to spend money. A lot of people complain about the Walmartization of America and everybody's buying cheap products made in, you know, cheap factories with, you know, 13-year-old kids in other countries. Well, guess what? If we were able to reap more of the fruits of our labor and we didn't have the type of debt that you have from healthcare and from student debt especially, then you're going to be able to spend more. You can buy local. You can go and buy that local cup of coffee. You can go contribute to that, pay a little extra for that, this or that, so that you can contribute. So these are some of the things, and this leads me into the last point I'll make about you're talking about the, the sort of causes and, and, and historical significance. I'll agree with you on, on the point of the federal government being involved. I think it's a problem in the sense that the federal government, I wouldn't have a problem with the federal government if it was involved in subsidizing higher education. Right. So if you're going to subsidize it in the sense that you're making it free and accessible to every American that's willing to work and get the grades to do it based on performance, I have no problem with that as long as it's regulated. And But the problem is they're making billions of dollars of profits off the American people. The federal government is. And so that's where they're wrong. They shouldn't be profiting off the American people. 
they should be working for us. The other thing you mentioned too, the biggest factor with student debt going up is the decrease in state subsidies. So while you had this huge increase in federal subsidies, the states trying to figure out different ways to pull money together to quote unquote balance their budgets have been disinvesting in higher education. Whereas before you mentioned when your father went to school or my parents went to school, invested so highly in higher education, you could go there and you could work a summer job to do that. The other thing that we need to talk about as well is during that time was the climate was different. I mean, we had, you know, since the 1970s, wages have essentially flatlined. They haven't gone up. We had more people at that time who had a little bit more in their pockets. Now, if you really look at it, I think it's sort of an anomaly because people say, well, people are still spending money. I think we're not spending a lot of money at all. I think we're borrowing more and we're borrowing just to work. And that's my thing is we shouldn't be in a situation where we're borrowing to work. And so I, I think you're right to look and examine the root cause of this. I've done it myself and it's been my life for the last few years figuring out what's going on here. I think it's a hybrid of a lot of different things. I think it does have to do with the federal government being involved in, frankly, a predatory way. I think it does have something to do with states funding being disinvested from funding state schools, which are should be accessible and open to students and reasonable. It also has something to do with the larger problem that we have. So I think student debt crisis, I think, is a larger issue that we have in terms of how we value certain tenants in this country. I think there was, and I, I'm not just going, going back to the golden age, but if you really look at that golden age, if you will, there was a different mentality in terms of what we were investing in. And the fourth thing, and Robert Wright talks about this in his documentary, is the thing that a lot of people forget is the advent of not only the internet, but but technology, and essentially really making a lot of jobs obsolete here. I mean, the computer, as, as amazing as it's been, and also the outsourcing of a lot of industry has really changed the dynamics. And so you're right. Now we have a situation where our degrees are essentially devalued and we have all these degrees and people are going in them to get jobs. This is really important. The issue that I also have has to do with the job market itself. I don't believe that higher education should be tied to the workforce. I don't. What I mean by that is I don't think higher education should just be a stepping stone for economic gain. And that's why I believe so highly that it should be free and open to the public. And when I say free, it's paid somehow. We know how that's paid and it's, and it's through subsidies. That being said, there's a problem with how employers are hiring. It's barbaric. It's like the old, like you said, the old industrial age, right? It's like a car factory. Not every job requires a college degree. And that's a strange thing that has occurred across the board. You got Enterprise Rent-A-Car. You got the deli down the street, for God's sake. Everybody is requiring a bachelor's degree, which in essence requires everybody to take on some form of debt. Unless you have a full scholarship, you're looking at some form of debt. So that needs to be revitalized and reformed as well. Employers need to stop saying, oh, we just want you know people with college degrees, because at the time, that to them was some sort of quality assurance. What they need to start focusing on is, does this degree literally translate to the job I want he or she to do? And also saying, listen, let's work on in-house training programs where if it's for a specific skill, we can offer or facilitate that training without requiring the degree. And that's how it's kind of turned into a scam, right? Because a lot of these jobs out there, and you'll hear people say, well, I'm just getting my master's degree. They're not getting their master's degree to explore the idiosyncrasies of their of their degree major. The majority of people are doing it for an economic gain. Their thought process is, if I get this degree, I can make more money, which essentially means make more money to pay off debt. That's a dangerous world to live in, and that's why I'm kind of working so hard to at least bring awareness to it. I think you make a lot of good points there, Aaron, and especially when you say, you know, a lot of jobs you don't need a degree for. Now, I work in television production out here in Los Angeles. I have a degree in communications from Penn State, a subsidized university, though I did not receive those subsidies because I came from outside the state. Right. Silly me. Why did I do that? I don't know. I have discovered, I think, and, and I'm still paying off student debts, too. They're not massive. They're not bankrupting me. I, they're, it's a, you know, I can pay them, but I've taken my time paying them because the rates are pretty low and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, it makes me think every time I send that check, like, what am I actually paying for? Because I work with a lot of people that have the same skills that I have to do what we do to, you know, do our television production. 
And I work with people that went to college like I did and got a degree. I also work with people that didn't go to college and don't have any degree. And they just went into the workforce after college. And maybe they didn't go right into TV, but eventually they found their way into this industry and they learned everything on the ground. And now they do the exact same thing I do. And the only difference between me and him is I have the college debt and he doesn't. Because he didn't, I don't want to say waste, because, you know, I don't see my specific time in college as a waste. You know, I made a lot of good friends there. My fellow Lions of Liberty I met there. The experience itself was, you know, a worthy experience, one that I'll always cherish. But if I actually think back and then look at my life now, I say, was this really necessary in terms of the financial burden? In terms of, did I really need to spend all this money and take all these other courses in areas that I wasn't interested in? Didn't care much for. Some of them were interesting, but really I was just trying to fill up X amount of credits that I had to earn. And do we really need to have that kind of mentality? And I think you'd agree with me. We really don't. But then we go back to that question, why is that mentality increasing? And I think a big part of it is because... You know, we're not operating in a free market here. This is not a car lot where you go and you actually buy the car you want. This is a situation where you've got subsidies, you've got federal loans, all of them together. And I'm just lumping them together. And I agree that they are different. But, you know, for the purposes of our conversation, these are all systems by which money flows towards these universities. Now, obviously, the state universities get their money directly and they operate in a certain way, but they are also, you know, you focus on the, this term for profit, but, you know, they are making a profit as well, as are these other more predatory kind of organizations that you're talking about. Everyone's making a profit. You know, there are deans making a shit ton of money. There are professors that are tenured that are making a ton of money. Everybody is invested in the system as it is, and they are equally invested in the system growing and all this money continuing. I mean, how many schools just get these new wings? You know, Penn State a few years ago just had this giant new wing, or, you know, all these new buildings, and then I get a, a letter in the mail asking me for money when I'm, when I'm still paying off my debt from there. Why are they spending all this money on a new wing? Well, they don't, they don't operate in a free market. They have subsidies. They have money that's guaranteed to come to them for certain things, so they operate in a different way. You know, every time we kind of interfere in the regular interactions of people and what they would normally want to do, we interfere through, through loans, through subsidies. We're going to change behavior in certain ways, and whether we think that behavior is good or bad, there's no doubt that that money changes the behavior. I think you would agree with me on that. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong whenever I say things like, I think you'd agree with me, because if, if you don't, feel free to interrupt. But, um, you know, that, that's basically the way I see it is this system through various means has developed where because so many people are, are going to school, you know, the reason that it used to signify something to an employer, oh, this person has this college degree was because not everybody had a college degree. You know, not everybody needed to or decided to go out of high school and go into a, a four year college, just like not everybody goes to uh, medical school or goes to law school because not everybody needs that extra education. By the same token, not everybody needs that extra education beyond high school. I would argue a lot of people don't even need the high school education because we see a whole lot of kids who are homeschooled or, or unschooled or what have you, and their success rates are just off the charts a lot of the time. So I think a lot of it plays into a larger way that we as a society view what school is, view the necessity of degrees and that sort of thing. But again, you mentioned the 70s earlier and how you know wages started kind of stagnating then. And it's interesting that you mentioned that specific time period because the 70s is when basically the financial reins were taking off of the federal government. Nixon put an end to um, the ability for countries to exchange, to retrieve their gold. He basically ended any semblance of a gold standard. And what that did was it really took the reins off the Federal Reserve, off the federal government, and federal spending exploded. You know, this is to pay for a number of things, to pay for the Vietnam War, to pay for welfare, to pay for the Great Society, to pay for all these things. When this spending explodes... And they're creating all this new debt now, which is they're also doing with the student loans. They're doing with everything. This really devalues the dollar. It stagnates the economy. And there's a reason why that's you know the time that you see wages stagnating and that kind of thing. And what's interesting about both of us, Aaron, this is a very unique interview to me because I'm not asking as many questions. We're just kind of exchanging rants. And that's great because I think you and I are both people that kind of have so much in our mind to spit out. And sometimes we just get going and we, we let it keep going. So that's what I did once again, just there. So instead of, instead of following up with a question, I'll just let you respond to my rant. <laughs> Yeah, this is Oz. This is like we should make, do a show. I'm serious. It's like a dueling monologue. Um, hey, I'm I'm open to ideas, my man. 
that well th- it is it's really cool uh, i think and i think the reason why it's so it turns into a monologue is because i think you're touching on the fact that it is a really highly complex issue um it kind of breaks traditional interview format because of the fact obviously you have a, a, a perspective but it's it is such it, you cannot ignore the the current implications economically politically you cannot ignore the the past and the history and you can't ignore trying to investigate these certain causes I, I know what you're talking about with federal spending. I also look at it in terms of at least in the 70s specifically and then going into the 80s where you know you have essentially had workers who are essentially bringing home less and taking on more debt. And on top of that, you had the introduction of essentially the mass credit card stuff, right? I mean massive amounts of credit cards were available to the poor now. I mean credit cards used to just be available to you know like wealthy people, you know, like the ones who could actually pay them off. And so you have these huge deposits from, I mean, a history of production in this country that has never been seen around the world, the most productive country, and making billions of dollars for corporations and companies. And instead of essentially reinvesting that back into the workforce and back into the community, um, which had essentially done through legislation, what was done forcibly through through um, different forms of taxation, now it was then okay. What, instead of these sort of profits, what, what should we do? Well, we'll just we'll just take the money that American people essentially have accumulated through their labor and essentially lend it back to them with interest. I mean, this so there there is this sort of climate that occurred. There was a number of things that occurred uh, before our time and has kind of put us into a path that we're at right now. I I wanted to say a a comment on a couple of things that you said as well about the idea of the value of college. I am one that comes into all my conversations with the idea that higher education is a value. Uh, You even have said, I mean, it's – it was it was uh, it was something that formed informed you connected you socially you know I know for me being an eighteen year old to a twenty three year old or whatever twenty two year old like if you don't mind I, that, I say that but at the same time I, I, you know that's that's really a, a lot of about the organizations I joined off campus uh, friends I made and I didn't really say this before but I guess my point is I could have just moved to State College Pennsylvania and lived there and had great experience and had those exact same great experiences. And maybe, you know, and not spent all that money at the same time. No, no. I, and, and, and I actually – I'll agree with you in that sense because I, well, I believe that – I don't think it would be as arbitrary as sort of just moving to a, a city. I mean it, there is that. But I'm saying I believe that the, the functionality of the university being a place that not only facilitates access to different forms of education and exposure – you're exposed, you know, you're being exposed to a lot of different things for the first time in your life. I know, I mean, I, you know, you're, you go to state college, I I saw you're from Western New York, and now you're in Los Angeles. So over your last 15 years, you know, you've had this wide range of experiences, myself included, you know, I was from Northeast Ohio, lived in DC, then lived in New York area for five years now back in Cleveland. So I mean, this is really informative. So those things are important. But I really believe so much happened for me socially and not socially just like hanging out having beer i'm talking about thinking and there is a space a time and space that was allotted to really form you as a, as a young adult or entering young adulthood to then try to figure out how can i contribute to the society how can i contribute to my own life my own well-being and the people around me now these are decisions that obviously can't be made on your own. However, I believe that time and space is really important. Time and space that is away from the everyday grind of paying bills, the everyday grind of fear of lack of economic security, the everyday grind of got to get the paycheck to pay off this thing. That sort of time and space is really valuable. However, that's why I believe it should not be connected to the workforce in the way that it is, meaning that it's not like this shouldn't be this. If you go to college, that means you get a good job. What I'm thinking is I and that's why I believe in in, in subsidizing higher education in the sense that if we can take the, look, you're right. The, the NFL is a nonprofit, right? Look how much money they make. So you can say what of course, these institutions are profiting. However, if we can change the entire format, shift the paradigm in the sense that they aren't looking to to maximize tons of profits off of students and then off of debt and then off of merchandise. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with with making money or or profit. You need that to run a business. I need that when I tour, right? I need a little le- extra left over to get me to the next show. That makes sense. However, I believe there are certain institutions that are sacred. 
And I believe higher education is one of those those tenets. And I believe that should not have uh, th- there should not be this idea of profit being the number one goal. It should be a situation in which people can go and have this experience. And by the way, it's not just a free for all. You have to work. You have to get good grades. You have to prove that you want to be there. It should be performance based in that sense, but also should be something like you said that isn't necessarily just connected to the job market. And that's the problem. All right, we're going to take a little break, guys. We'll be back in just a few moments with more from Aaron Calafato. This is Ben Swan, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy. What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, There can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. Every Monday we have our longest running feature, Mondays with Murray, named after the great libertarian Murray Rothbard, where we'll examine an article or an excerpt from his works and help convey his view along with our little spin as well. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, we are back, and I am still here with Aaron Califato discussing his play For Profit and the Student Debt Crisis. The climate at the universities, you mentioned a couple things. Look, you have your tenured professors. What's happening now, the trajectory... You have 70% of people working at university are adjuncts. I mean, they're not only part-time staff. I mean, they are making $20,000 a year. Now, in order to be able to teach as an adjunct, you essentially have to have, most of the time, masters, if not a PhD. And imagine how much debt they're taking on to be able to do that. And so there is this huge problem that's happening where, you're right, there is sort of an arms race that's occurring with higher education. There's an arms race where people, you know, who can build the biggest building because they're all competing for these dollars. And they have to justify those subsidies. I mean, if they're going to get X amount in subsidies from the state, and let's say they only spend 90% of that, well, they're not going to get the same amount next year. They're going to say, oh, you guys don't even need all these subsidies. So they're always going to have to find a way to spend all of that money coming in, whether it's from tuition, whether it's from subsidies, or especially, I guess, in the case of the state institutions that are supposed to be you know, nonprofit or what have you, they're going to spend that money. And that's why we get all this kind of spending that we, isn't necessarily needed, why certain salaries might go up. That we, There's really no way to know what spending is needed and what isn't, because when you remove a market kind of basis for this, when people aren't choosing schools based on what that school is building, what that school is offering, 
then it takes the market out of it when we put all these distortions in there, when we put in subsidies. Now, my problem with subsidies from, from my libertarian standpoint here is that when you're talking about subsidies, what you're doing is the state is taxing, you know, X group of people, everybody that lives in that state, taking some of that money, giving it to the universities. Now, that might sound good because it might, you know, in, in theory, lower the cost of, you know, that university, help some people that live in state. Yeah, in terms of the state subsidies, my thinking is, look, there's a difference that a lot of people have. And sometimes it, I come into this conflict with my libertarian friends, which is I believe that certain subsidies and certain investments in certain um, aspects of um, not only American culture, but American organizations and businesses, it's good economics. From a state point of view, you know, I live in the state of Ohio, the seventh most populated state in the country, um, but we're also the seventh highest student debt burden state in the country. I mean, so to have your young workforce, which essentially is going to be driving the economy in the next 15 years, 10 to 15 years, making the biggest and the most broad economic choices, to reduce that is essentially to create a system in which people can have and have access to higher education and reap the fruits of their labor. The idea that I have is, you know, it, the, when more people have more money in their pocket, it's it's good. It's good for everybody. Now, as you know, there's a lot of different methods. There's a lot of people saying, well, then don't tax us. And there's a lot of people saying, I, I would argue, look, you know, I don't mind if I'm living in the state of Ohio or any state, I don't mind the tax because I believe there's going to be a residual effect from that because you're going to have people starting businesses. You're going to have people being able to not have to depend on federal programs because they're living in poverty because they have so much student debt or, or health care. I mean, that's what I'm saying is it's this, it's this kind of, uh, it's a different shift in mentality. A lot of people think, well, I'm not seeing it on the front end. So I don't want to invest in it. And where I come from is saying, listen, these yes regulated and making sure that the spending for the state isn't just on unnecessary items, but it needs to be invested in students and teachers. And if we can invest in those things and investing in education, accessibility, and making sure when people get out of school or if they drop out and it's not their favorite thing, think about that. Look, you want to, we want to talk about college being sort of a have it your way thing, which it has been. We don't value higher education in this country. We don't. If we did, it would be free and open to the public. It's not. It's not like many industrialized countries. It's not. We, we don't value higher education. We want to profit on higher education. And so, and, and that goes for the federal government and that goes for the institutions as well. Both are to share the blame and the bankers and, and the lenders. So, I mean, you have so many parties here essentially just driving and, and squeezing the, the American public on this. And so that's the thing that I say. So whatever we can do, and I'm primarily more interested in state subsidies because I don't think the federal subsidies have been of help and I think it's incentivized bad behavior. So my thinking is if we can reduce costs on the front end, and like you said, when your dad went to school or you know when you go to school, yeah, you have to work for it and maybe it'll be less, you know, it won't be as much. But if it's reasonable, that's the key because when it's reasonable to people and they have more money in their pocket, they're going to buy homes. They're going to buy cars. They're going to buy advertising to, you know, when they're starting their business. And that's, that's the thing. They're going to be able to hire more workers because they have extra money. So I see it from a pro-business perspective. And that's why I see from the front end, I know it's, it's the word tax is scary, but if you, from my perspective, you really look at it, if you can figure out a way to reduce the cost on the front end, then on the back end, you have a lot of people who are now educated in, in, in most cases, and they have, they're relatively debt-free. What a powerful thing. You know, my wife and I pay $1,500 a month combined in student loan debt, $1,500 a month. I want you to think about wow. that. That's, most, that's more than most people's mortgages. And by the way, this is a hybrid of federal and public loans. We didn't go to the most expensive school. We went to the cheapest state school we could find in Ohio. But this is because of things like compound interest with the loans. And this is because if you don't have enough money and then they're tacking on late fees and late fees. So no matter what, it's growing. The, the student loans themselves are essentially not meant to be paid back in a timely fashion. They're meant to accrue interest and to capitalize off you for your lifespan. That's a design system. And so that's the problem that I have. And so any way to reduce that cost up front, I'm all for. And the way I see it as of now is to, is to go back or to at least reformulate a plan in which states are investing in higher education in the sense it is making it absolutely reasonable or at best free and open to the public to be able to go. That's just my, that's just my perspective. And, but I think at the end of the day, our end game is the same. The idea is, look, we just this is ridiculous crisis and we got to figure our way out of here 
Well, we definitely agree on that. It is ridiculous, and we do need to figure a way out. I don't think we'll necessarily agree on that way out. You know, and we can go back and forth on subsidies and that kind of thing all day long. It's not necessarily what we need to do at, at the moment. But, you know, you said something at the end there, you know, how, how every, you know, this access should be free and open. And it's really interesting because in, in many ways, technology is enabling education to become free and open as it is. You know, there are so many alternatives to education online. I'm not really talking about like the University of Phoenixes or, or places like that. But I mean, just literally free information that that's out there. You know, so much learning material is available digitally. You no longer necessarily need to be physically on campus to attend class. And with all that access to education becoming more and more available, you know, any kind of common sense should tell us that prices should be dropping. You know, these other colleges should have to compete with all this new information that's out there. And yet prices just keep rising and rising and rising. You know, why do you think that higher education prices still keep going up despite despite that? Because, you know, I'm sitting on a MacBook right now. This thing costs me about $1,200. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. It's, it's It enables me to do my podcast. 20 years ago, if I want, I, I mean, I could never get something for this price, A, and it would do nothing compared to what I have. So, you know, when you really have, when you see areas that have more of a free market where, you know, consumers are really deciding and driving the direction things go in, prices naturally go down and quality naturally increases. So, I mean, I, I don't see why college or why education should be anything different. And, the you know, this system, the like you mentioned before, these various forces between the federal government, the banks, everybody, and there are many forces with vested interests in the current system as is. These forces are all kind of working to prop up this system that I think if we didn't have all of that pull and tug in different ways, it would just look vastly different. You know, many people wouldn't choose to go to college. Many people would just choose to educate themselves online. Many people would, you know, would start a business at the age of 15. They wouldn't even think to go to college because it wouldn't be something that we're necessarily all driving towards. And I think that is just naturally changing because of the student debt crisis, because many people are simply seeing that the value that they're paying is not what they're getting in return. So I think that is naturally happening anyway, because despite all the loans, despite all the subsidies, eventually the markets do correct themselves. The problem is they are correcting themselves on the backs of so many people that are burdened with this debt. And, you know, that is what you're trying to bring forward there. So Aaron, before I let you go, I'll let you get in, you know, a few final thoughts about my rant there and I'll let you, you know, let everybody know where they can find your work for profit and all that. Sure. So I'll meet you in the in the middle on that. I'll come from you're coming from more of a free market perspective. Uh, I'm going to come from more of a, a civic action perspective. And I think in some ways we can draw some parallels there in terms of action. Um, these systems only exist because we allow them to. We talked a little bit throughout the conversation about the history of uh, and the different perspectives of what really caused it. Was it increase of federal spending? Was it because, you know, the sort of continuation of privatization and the lack of communal sense in, in terms of how we should redistribute funds for, for profits and companies? Uh, is it the, you know, advent of the credit card? What, what are these things? And by the way, all of them have valid points. And I think you can draw different conclusions based on your perspective. At the end of the day, like you said, we are where we are. Um, we are in 1.2 or, or, or between 1.2 and 1.4 trillion dollars in student debt, and it is on the back of the American students, and it is a system which has essentially preyed on our young people. Then, from my perspective as an activist, is if we don't like that, then we have to stop that, and stopping it means with your dollars. We got an issue with fear. We got an issue with sort of a I don't know, and I'm examining this. When I'm going to colleges, I, I'm talking with students and we're saying, what can we do? Not just to get aware, we have to be active. So there's some different things you can do. You can work through policy. You can do the I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill thing, right? But we know how dysfunctional DC is. And we've been advocate for politicians and groups. And we I work with numerous coalitions around the country who are pushing legislation that go to not only forgive student loan debt, but also just to be in the, the benefit of student borrowers. But that's not being passed. It's not even being looked at at times. So Senator Warren is going to be introducing a bill in which they're talking about reducing interest rates. And while that's great, and while I support that at the same time, it's like, you know, stab me with a knife instead of shooting me with a gun, right? It's the same problem. So I'm for more of a radical shift. The problem is, can we get that radical shift through policy? Can we get it through DC? Some would argue yes, some would no. I don't know. I think it's possible. I don't know because the problem is there's a lot of money in politics. And I don't think our government is responding to people in the way it should be. I believe it's it's responding to sponsors. 
the politicians that are in office are responding to people who are funding their campaigns, not necessarily the people that are putting them into office. So that kind of puts a little bit of a tricky slant on being able to push this sort of thing, the reform I'm looking for through through DC. Then the other side of it is how can we become more active? Now, this is where we start talking about things like civil disobedience and different ideas of what we can do. Uh, 300,000 students in Montreal stormed the street when their government you know, announced it was going to raise tuition like something like a percent or two percent just for that what amazing political and civic will to do that that's not happening here you know in chile there was a there is a an activist who went in and stole documents and burned up documents for student debt essentially freeing so many students and now the university has to recoup all these costs now i'm not advocating for the sort of that that sort of radical extreme radical behavior but i think it's a great lesson to be learned that to do this thing, we all have to do it. And one, and you said, if costs are continuing, well, there's a reason why costs are continuing, because we keep taking loans out. We keep going to school. We keep continuing on the same exact track that we have been. And we're doing that why? We're doing that because we're afraid. We're doing that because we don't want our kid or our son or our daughter to be the one without the job. We don't want to be the one that doesn't have the degree or doesn't have the salary. What we need to do is we have to have, and I think this is where you and I will agree, we have to lower our dependence, not only on the university, we have to lower our political dependency. And there's got to be a hybrid. And this is where, you know, this is where I kind of blend my two brothers and sisters from, you know, socialists and, and libertarians and, and Republicans, Democrats. We have to exist in a hybrid in which the individual exists and is, and is valid, but we're also aware of the collective and it has to exist simultaneously. One or the other extreme doesn't just work. And so what I look at it is, look, if this thing isn't working collectively, we have to say, why are we allowing this to work with our dollars? We keep paying not only the taxes, but we also keep paying tuition. We have to, if we really want this to stop as citizens, we don't need just to get informed. We need to demand the systems to change. And that means stop putting in political leaders that don't advocate for student debt relief. And it means at sometimes stop paying your student debt. That's another option. People are looking at large mass debt refusal. And there's or even the idea of, look, if this isn't going to change, we're not going to school. So I know that's look, I just said it in like two minutes and in three sentences. But these are large, massive uh, civic reactions. But it can be done. And it just has to, we just have to have the will to say we deserve better. And right now, I don't think we deserve better. And, I, and, and through my small little part, I'm trying to at least voice that concern and get people kind of fired up about it. Well, Aaron, we could probably spend three or four hours talking days, about this Mark. days, weeks, years, and maybe we will in the future. And we might not, you know, at the end of the day, change each other's worldview, but that's not what I necessarily need to do in the context of one podcast. But I am glad we could have this conversation because regardless of political bent, this is something that almost everyone our age is dealing with either directly or at least through loved ones that have the same issue. Everyone is dealing with this debt burden coming from student loans. And at the same time, a lot of people are realizing that they're just not getting what they were promised, what they were told through various organizations, through their school, through their parents, through the government, through media that have all kind of driven into our skulls. This is what you got to do. You got to go to college. You got to take out the loan. That's how you do life. And I think for various reasons, one, for people like you that are out there drawing attention to this and pointing out, hey, hello, there's a fire. Now, we might not agree. Maybe you think you should use a hose on it, and I think we should like throw a blanket over it. But we both agree the fire's there. So that's step one is pointing out the fire, and I think you're doing a great job with that. Aaron, where can everybody out there listening find the work you're doing on for profit, uh, letting people know where you're going to be soon. Maybe if someone's listening, they can come see your show and just let everybody know where they can find everything you're doing. Yeah. So for, for my work, you just go to AaronCalafato.com. It's my full name, AaronCalafato.com. And on the webpage, you know, there's everything there. It's kind of talks about the, the, the monologue for profit that I do talks about the kind of work that I do and the monologues that I write about other issues. And then there's like a booking form there as well. So if there's, you know, I I'm hosted by universities and conferences and theaters and different folks around the country. So it's been pretty busy. I'm, I'm continuing starting again, touring at the end of August and we're going to go through spring of 2015, um, we have a number of events lined up around the country. So it'll be really exciting. So if anybody wants just to find out more information, they can go to the website. They can check out the booking form. There's pictures. There's sort of uh, a message about my work and why it's important. And uh, and so, yeah, they can they can just – you go to AaronCalafato.com for that. 
And then the organization that I, I co-founded in terms of getting more resources about, just like you said, awareness about student debt and figuring out where they stand with all that and how they can take more action from a policy side, that's studentdebtcrisis.org. And we have you know, a large base of folks. We got about 1.5 million people on our listserv, and that means a lot of 1.5 million people who are in debt. And so we're all sort of trying to gather together and we're trying to figure out a structure in which we can uh, kind of um, not only to kind of share stories, but also try to figure out a blueprint for the change that we want to see. Um, so I appreciate you having me and, and obviously uh, being open to discuss this. And also for your work, I, I agree with you. I think we both see the fire and that's the first step. So I'm glad to, to witness that with you. And thanks for letting me, you know, talk about my work and, and the kind of uh, the medium that I use to, uh, to bring outreach to it and, and awareness. So I appreciate it. Aaron Califato, thanks so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. I really appreciate your time. We'll talk again soon. Yes, we will. Thank you so much, Mark. Take care. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, and what a great talk I had there today with Aaron Califato. And you know, he's the kind of guest I really enjoy having on the show because you know I have a lot of guests from within the libertarian movement. A lot of names libertarians tuning in will have heard of, like you know, Walter Block, Stephen Kinsella, Jeffrey Tucker. And uh, these are all guys I have disagreement with on one level or another. But when I have on another libertarian or libertarian-leaning guest, you know, we already kind of speak the same language in many ways. Libertarians have a way of viewing the world sort of through the prism of individual liberty and individual rights, and that's vastly different from the perspective that many others hold. You know, I, if it wasn't that different, I wouldn't need to do this podcast and have this website, lionsofliberty.com. You know, I wouldn't need to do all this to try to get more people interested in the ideas of liberty. But Aaron's a different kind of guest. He doesn't come from that perspective, and I really enjoy talking to people that don't come from that perspective because it's just a different kind of conversation. And we're going to have a lot of disagreements. You know, we talk about Aaron's wants an educational system run by government subsidies. I mean, that's obviously a completely different perspective than the libertarian is going to take. However, you know, I'm not I don't plan with this interview to change Aaron Califato's worldview within the scope of the half hour, 45 minutes or what have you, or even longer in this case, because he was gracious enough to stay on a little bit longer with me today. But, you know, the idea is that if we can find some common ground, find some mutual points of agreement with people that come from a vastly different perspective, you know, in that case, we can sort of maybe try to, you know, see things a different way. Not necessarily that I'll start thinking we should use government subsidies and that we should tax people collectively to pay for education and that kind of thing. No, but... We can understand each other. We can have a civil conversation. And hopefully some of his folks that are listening will start to think, hey, maybe that Mark Clare guy, that crazy libertarian guy, maybe he's got a few points. Maybe we should look at how education is funded. Maybe a lot of government subsidies and a lot of all of this way that we view government in regards to education is a little bit wrong. Maybe there's a new way to look at things. And we're not going to get through to people by just beating them in the head and screaming, free markets, free markets. That That's not going to work because like a lot of these companies we talked about today, not everything done on the free market is great. Yes, these students, they signed the contract. They took the debt. And there is a level of responsibility they should absolutely hold for that. But at the same time, we should not completely let off the hook a lot of these quote-unquote for-profit organizations. I think that's a faulty term. I don't think there's anything wrong with profit, but it's the term he uses. So let's just play along, guys. Um, you know, a lot of these institutions are predatory in the manner in which they go about people, and we have to look at what enables that. It is those government subsidies, those government-guaranteed loans. Even private student loans are ultimately backed up by the government in a lot of ways because you can't default on student debt in the same manner as you could default on even a home mortgage or that kind of thing. The laws are so twisted to make it very difficult to declare bankruptcy for student debt. So, you know, it, there are so many ways in which the government skews things or to allow the creation of organizations that then use that leverage to very predatory way, go after people, get convince them to sign up for these loans, sell that American dream that, hey, sure, the money's there, you're going to be fine, you'll work it off, you'll get a great job, everything's going to work out, but that's just not reality. It simply isn't. And, you know, it's that kind of conversation we need to have to try to show people that maybe it's not just a one-issue thing, maybe just the way we look at things in general needs to change. 
I don't know about you guys, but I don't like being screamed at and told how wrong my viewpoint is. I do love having intellectual debate. I do love having conversations about the issues of the day. And that's the kind of tact that we need to take when we have conversations with people that maybe come at from issues from a completely different perspective. Such as Aaron Califato does, you know, and, and we're never going to agree. Maybe, I don't want to say never. I like to think Aaron's a smart guy. And if we engage enough, maybe we will agree on more things eventually. But, you know, we're not going to agree tomorrow anyway on whether school should be funded through government subsidies. You know, I don't think I'll agree with his, his sort of esoteric view of higher education, that it's about more than economics. It's, it is about more than economics. It should be about learning. But the point is, who should learn what in that kind of decision should be left up to individuals, individuals who want to pursue certain areas and decide that maybe certain institutions are the way that, to go or, or that kind of thing. And that's the way we're going to see competition. That's the way they're going to have to compete with the internet and all the great information out there. You know, that's the way we're going to see lower prices and more quote unquote free and open education. Nothing's free, but things will be a lot more open to a lot more people when we have a freer system, free of subsidies, free of regulations and free of all of this skewing that government does that ultimately results in devalued degrees and students settle with a ton of debt. So, you know, we can always find common ground when we see each other's perspectives to get a conversation going. And we want to keep the conversation going. We want you to have a conversation with us, which you can, of course, do over at our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter over at Lions of Liberty. Look us up on Google Plus if you're a fan of that. Connect with us in any way you can, because we want to keep these conversations going. And guys, the only thing I ask of you is to live long and live free. (laughs) 